Sunday mornings, we're working through the book of Philippians. We're getting close to the end of the book. This morning is the last Sunday. We'll be in Philippians chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, take it out. Find Philippians 3. Next week, we're going to take a one-week break from Philippians on Easter Sunday. And then we're going to be back for six Sundays as we wrap up Philippians 4. And then as soon as summer comes... We're going to talk about parables. We're going to have a summer sermon series on parables. So that's what's coming up. But this morning we're still in Philippians chapter 3, so find that in your Bible. There's some notes in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along on the outline. A couple of things we need to sort of get straight in our brain. For many of you, this will be very basic review. For some of this, uh, excuse me, for some of you, this may be new ideas, new thoughts. But let's start with this. The word walk is used in the Bible to describe the entirety of a person's life. Usually when you read this idea of walking, sometimes it just means a person is walking, one foot in front of the other walking. But a lot of the time it's used sort of in a, a different sense to describe the totality, the entirety of your life. And I gave you a whole bunch of verses on your outline. I'm just going to put a few of those up on the screen and read those to you so you can hear these scriptures and sort of get the feel for what this sounds like in the Bible. Genesis 5:24. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. That doesn't really mean that Enoch and God were like walking buddies necessarily, like they had their favorite trail, you know, through the woods where they went together, but it means he lived his life in fellowship with God. Look at the next one. Deuteronomy 5. You shall walk in all the ways that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. He's saying your entire life needs to be marked by a fellowship and a closeness with God. Look at the next one. Joshua 22. Be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Look at the next one. Romans 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul's saying there ought to be a change in every aspect of who you are. The totality, the entirety of your life ought to look different because of what Christ has done for you. The next one, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith and not by sight. I think I have one more up that I'm going to show you. Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You get the idea. All of these passages, we're talking about walking. We're saying this ought to be true of the whole, the entirety, the totality, every aspect of your life ought to be marked by a closeness with God, a, a fellowship with God, an intimacy with God. And that's going to come up in our passage this morning. In Philippians 3, 17 to 21, our passage, Paul is describing two different allegiances. And Paul, at times, is just a very black and white guy. And this fits with, with what you see in other places in the Scripture. In the Bible, sort of describing there are two types of people in this world. And we won't look at these passages, but in John 8, Jesus says to a group of Jews, 
you're not children of God, you're actually children of the devil. And those are the two options that he lays out for them. Children of God or children of the devil. In Colossians 1, Paul puts it this way. He says, you used to be part of the domain of darkness, but now you're part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And those are the two options. There's no middle ground. There's no go-between. It's the domain of darkness or the kingdom of Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, once you were not a people, now you are a people. Meaning, once you were not God's people, now you are God's people. And those are the two choices. And Paul lays it out here in Philippians chapter 3 with these two possible allegiances. And so here's the big idea of the passage. The example you follow and the way you walk, there's our word again, the way you walk, are telltale signs of your true citizenship. The example that you follow and the way that you walk are telltale signs of your true citizenship. And so I'll just try to be as absolutely plain as I can about this and what I'm trying to communicate to you and what I think Paul is saying in this passage. Forget where you go to church. That's not a sign of your citizenship. Forget how often you go to church. Forget how much money you drop in the offering box when you walk into the church. Forget the Facebook posts that you share, the Bible verses and all of those things. And I'm not telling you not to do that. I'm not making fun of you if you do do that. I'm just telling you forget all that stuff. It's easy stuff. We're not talking about church stuff Stuff one hour out of your week on Sunday morning, one button that you click on a screen. Forget all of those things and step back and look at your life and say, what example am I following? And how am I walking? What is the entirety of my life like? The totality of my life. And what Paul's saying is, forget your quote-unquote profession of faith. If you want to know where your citizenship lies, whether it's in this world or in heaven, look at the entirety of your life. Look at your walk. Paul puts it this way. You're either an enemy of the cross or you're a citizen of heaven. Those are the two choices. Everyone in the room this morning is either an enemy of the cross or a citizen of heaven. Every person in your family is either an enemy of the cross or a citizen of heaven. Those are the categories. Every person you know, every person on this earth falls into one of these two camps. You're either here, an enemy of the cross, or you're here and you're a citizen of heaven. And Paul's laying this out very plainly for us to examine ourselves and to look at our lives. So look with me at Philippians 3, starting in verse 17. The scriptures say this. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. 
And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue this study through Philippians, reading the scriptures, listening to your word, thinking about what it means, applying it to our life, Father, we simply pray this morning that your spirit, the same spirit that inspired these words, would illuminate them to our minds and apply them to our hearts, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. Father, that you would strengthen us and encourage us where we need to be strengthened and encouraged. Father, be honored this morning as we submit ourselves to the authority of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to start with the negative and move to the positive this morning. First of all, how does Paul describe those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ? And it's worth just stopping before we get into this list and saying, who are these enemies of the cross of Christ? And the worst thing that you could do is just sort of forget everything else we've looked at in Philippians and come up with your own sort of pulling out a thin air explanation of who these people are. What you need to do is think about what we've been talking about in Philippians 3. And at the beginning of Philippians 3, Paul starts talking about a group of people we termed the legalists. These were the people who said, you can and you must earn your way with God. You've got to do good works in order to earn a relationship with God and earn a place in heaven. And we talked about the legalist, and Paul said to these people, your good deeds are just rubbish. You can't do that. It doesn't work that way. And then Paul pivoted, and he hasn't been talking to the legalists right where we left off. He's been talking to a group of people we called the antinomians, the people who are against the law, antinomos, against the law. And these are the people who said, look, we're saved by grace through faith. It's all Jesus. We don't contribute anything to that. That means we can put our faith in Jesus, and then we can do whatever we want to do. There are no moral restraints on us at all. Those are the people that Paul has in mind when he talks about enemies of the cross of Christ. Okay, get this in your brain. He's not, he's not talking about the, the secular university professor who's making fun of Christians. He's not talking about the person of some other uh, tribal religion offering sacrifices to their little statue God. He's not talking about any of these sort of crazy things, people way out there. He's talking about people, the enemies of the cross of Christ, who say with their lips, I follow Jesus. I trust in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. But then, if you look at the way they walk... They deny everything that they just told you they believed. Their walk does not match their profession. And Paul says, these are the people. I've told you about them many times, he says. And I'm telling you about them, telling you about them again now. They are the enemies of the cross of Christ. How does he describe these people? Number one, their end is destruction. The end for these people is destruction. You can go back and look at Genesis 3 later this afternoon. You may remember that in Genesis 3, verse 4, the serpent is talking with Eve. They're talking about this command that God gave Adam and Eve and this fruit that he told them not to eat. And there's a back and forth, and eventually the serpent sort of builds up to it, and he says, you will not surely die. 
You will not die. There will be no destruction on the other side of this decision. There will be no consequence. It doesn't matter what God says. There will be no consequence. And if you've read the scriptures, you know there was a consequence. There was death. Spiritual death immediately. Physical death that followed. Genesis 5 lists them off one at a time. They all die. One after another, after another, after another. Death always follows sin. And today we still believe the same foolishness where we think there will be no consequence. I can do this without the destruction. Look, it's sort of like this week I went with a group of guys and we ate at the food trucks downtown, okay? When the food trucks come downtown, we're going to eat at the food trucks. And they're delicious. And I know they're delicious. And I go down there and I get in line at one food truck and I say, I'm going to have the the Korean beef rice bowl. It's delicious. That's enough to fill me up. But it's not all I'm getting if I'm going to eat at the food trucks. I'm going to get my rice bowl, and then I'm going to go over to this food truck, and I'm going to say, you know, what I really need to top off this giant Korean beef rice bowl is a big dish of cheesy bacon french fries. That would really top it off. And I'm in the line, and I'm thinking, this is going to be so good, so delicious. I love food truck day, and you get so excited. And you would think by now that I would know when you go eat a whole Korean rice bowl, beef, rice bowl dish, whatever, and the cheesy fries with the bacon and all this stuff, about 2.30 in the afternoon, you're not going to feel so good. You're just going to kind of be leaning back in your office groaning, saying, why did I eat that? I knew better. I knew there would be a consequence. It's unavoidable when you eat that kind of junk. But that's how it works. And for Adam and Eve and for you and I, there is, of course, an immediate appeal to sin. There's something attractive in it. There's something desirable in it. But Paul is saying, look, these people who unrepentantly pursue sin in their lives while professing to believe in Jesus, the consequence is unavoidable. It's destruction. It will happen. And there's no escaping it. Their end is destruction. Secondly, he says they're controlled by their desires. And I know that in most translations it says they're controlled by their bellies. The Greek word there is sort of ambiguous. It could even mean they're controlled by their their private parts. You get the idea. What he's saying is these people are controlled by their desires. And they may be good desires, but whatever itch they have, they scratch it. And whatever whim they have, they follow it. And they don't put any restraint on how far they should go or where they should stop. They do whatever their heart tells them to do. And the sad irony is that in the end, they are controlled by their desires. They're slaves to their own desires. And again, our culture is so confused about this. We really believe, people really believe, the way to be free is to do whatever it is that you want to do. To chase your heart, follow your heart, pursue your dreams. Whatever it is out there that you think will make you happy, you should go for that, and that's where you find freedom in life. And Paul's saying, look, this is nothing new. How foolish can you be? In the end, you don't find freedom by chasing every one of your desires. You find slavery, and you're controlled by your desires. Their end is destruction, controlled by their desires. Number three, they glory in their shame. They glory in their shame. Again, I, I read this this week, and I think Paul is talking about us. He's talking about people who boast and who brag about things that should make them ashamed. 
The things that they're pursuing are shameful. They're embarrassing. They're humiliating. They're degrading. And these people turn around and they boast about these things and they brag about these things. It's exactly what Paul's talking about in Romans 1. He lists a long uh, sort of catalog of sins and then he says this. Though they know God's decree that those who practice these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. They applaud it. You should be ashamed of it, and instead Paul says they applaud it. Remember, just keep this in your brain. We're not talking about the crazy people out there who don't believe in Jesus, who don't know about Jesus. We're talking about people who say they love Jesus, but their life doesn't line up. Their walk doesn't match their profession of faith. Paul says, for those people, destruction is coming. They're going to be slaves to their desires. They're not going to find freedom. They're boasting in things that they should find shameful. And number four, their minds are set on earthly things. Earthly things. How easy it would be for us to sit in this room and to wag our finger and look down our nose at people who set their mind on earthly things because we're sitting in a church, reading the Bible, talking about the scriptures, singing songs to Jesus, doing all of these spiritual things. It would be so easy to sit in here and say, these people, they're just focused on earthly things. But this is one hour out of 166 that you get this week. What are you going to do with the other 165? Where's your focus going to be? And I know you've got to sleep some of that time, and I know you've got to work some of that time, and I know you've got to do some things with your family some of that time. So I'm not asking you to, like, put a majority on it or anything like that. I'm not trying to be a Pharisee and come up with some sort of rule that you need to follow. I'm just asking you, out of the other 165 you get this week, how many of those will be focused on spiritual things, not just earthly things? Because Paul says part of the problem with these people who say the right things about Jesus, but their walk doesn't match it, part of the problem is they're focused on earthly things. That's a problem. Look what John says in 1 John 3. We know that when he, Jesus, appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. He's thinking about spiritual things. Jesus coming back. Us being conformed to his image fully and completely. And then he says this, everyone who hopes in Jesus purifies himself as he is pure. And that's the connection. When you're focused on earthly things, you're not the kind of person that purifies yourself. You're not the kind of person whose walk matches your profession of faith. But when your focus is on spiritual things, your walk begins to line up with the place that it needs to be. So their end is destruction. They're controlled by their desires. They glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. One last thought before we move on. When Paul talks about these people, he's moved to tears by those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Not hatred, not disgust, but he's moved to tears. And again, you guys are the the folks who come on a Sunday morning, not just Easter Sunday, but even the Sunday before Easter Sunday. You're the real deal, right? So you look at this and you start to think about these enemies of the cross of Christ and maybe it starts to boil up inside you because you're thinking of somebody you know and you start to get angry about that. Or maybe you think about a particular person who's chasing unrepentantly a particular sin and maybe disgust 
starts to creep up and you think, oh, they say they love Jesus, but I know the difference. I just want to remind you that when Paul thought about those folks, his first response wasn't necessarily to be angry, and his first response wasn't to feel disgust. It was to cry for those people and to weep for those people. And I hope that as you sit in the room, as you read this description, some of you may be thinking about real people, like you can picture a face when you read this description. You're thinking, I know people like this. They say the right thing about Jesus, but their walk doesn't match. And I hope that doesn't necessarily just tick you off, and I hope it doesn't just make you feel repulsed, but I hope you weep for those people, and you pray for those people, and you try to encourage those people, and you look for opportunities to share the truth with those people, because Paul's response, he says, I've told you about these people before, I'm telling you about them again now, and I'm doing it with tears doing it with tears. Some of you may sit in the room and say, I'm not thinking about other people. I'm thinking about myself. I'm churched. I've been to VBS. I grew up in Sunday school. I know all the right answers. I say all the right things. Of course, I believe in Jesus. I live in Texas, in the Bible Belt, in West Texas, everyone believes in Jesus. Yes, I believe in Jesus. But you know as you read that description that Paul is talking about you. And I just pray that you would hear how Paul describes it. The end of that walk is not life by the skin of your teeth. It's destruction. It's destruction. And I, I can't press the heaviness of that on you any more than what Paul says here. The end is destruction. Now to the positive. How does he describe those who live as citizens of heaven? And before we jump in, let me just remind you, when Paul starts to talk about citizenship, that meant something special in Philippi, something that's easy for us to miss in the United States 2,000 years later. We don't know the history. But Caesar, way back in the day, B.C. days, in the 40s, he fought a battle, putting down a rebellion, some of his enemies. And the battle was fought right outside of Philippi. And at the end of that battle, Caesar took his most loyal soldiers who fought in the battle, and he said to them, I'm leaving you here in Philippi. I'm leaving you in this city. I want you to live here. I want you to make it a Roman colony. That was a big deal. Not every city, not every city in the ancient world got to be called a Roman colony. And so what he's saying is, I want you guys to wear Roman clothing. Don't dress like these guys out here. Dress like, like we would dress in Rome. And the government structure we're going to put in this city, I want it to be a, a Roman form of government. And we're not going to speak Greek like everyone here speaks, but in Philippi we're going to speak Latin in all official business. We're going to speak Latin because that's what we speak in Rome. So we're going to talk in Latin. We're going to lay this city out and design it like a mini Rome, right? We're going to have this building here and this building here. It's going to be laid out just the way the Romans want to lay a city out. And most importantly, because it's a colony, these soldiers who stayed were recognized as real Roman citizens. That meant when it was time to pay imperial taxes, you're completely off the hook. You don't have to pay. That meant if you were to be accused of a crime, you get treated with due process and the right to a trial where non-citizens don't get that. So when Paul starts to say to this church, where citizens of heaven, their ears perk up because they understand the importance of what it means to be a citizen. Here's what they understand. 
We don't necessarily live in Rome. We live hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away. But we enjoy all the benefits of being a citizen. We really are Romans. We don't live in the capital. We're not close to the palace or the Colosseum or any of those great things. But we really are Romans and we enjoy the benefits of that now. And what Paul's saying is, you're citizens of heaven. You're not there yet, you're here. But you really are citizens. You really don't belong here, you belong there. And even now you get all the benefits of being a citizen. So how does Paul describe those who live as citizens? Just a couple of thoughts. Number one, those who are citizens of heaven follow the example of those who follow Jesus. They follow the right example. Paul says in verse 17, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The us is Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. The guys who have been involved in sending this letter and writing this letter and sending an offering to Paul and bringing that message back from, from Paul in Rome to Philippi. And he's saying, look, look at us three, me, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, and just do what we do. Now, let's be honest. When Paul pipes up and says, you just need to follow my example, most of us say, well, you know, Poor Paul, bless his heart. He didn't know about the WWJD bracelets back then. They didn't invent that. He didn't know that you're supposed to tell people to do what Jesus did. He just thought, you know, he's confused. That came along later. No, no, no. Paul knew exactly what he was talking about. Look what he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I'm following Jesus and if you want to know how to do that, all you have to do is look at me and follow me. He's setting an example for them, and he's saying, you need to follow the right example. So just a couple of questions. Question one. In your spiritual life, are there people that you can look to and say, that's the example I'm following? Because there ought to be. Yes, I want you to follow Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the center. Yes, Jesus is the most important. But there ought to be somebody in your life that you look to and say, look, when it comes to loving my family, that's who I'm following. I want to do it like that person. When it comes to being faithful in Bible reading, I want to do it like they do it. I'm following that person. I'm learning from them. I'm looking at the example that they're setting, and I'm following them. Look, that's how we learn is through imitation. Right? We see something done and we learn how to do it. That's why, have you been on YouTube lately and looked for how-to videos? You can find a how-to video on YouTube for anything. And I'm about to prove it to you because I used one this week to look up a German name. And there it was, some obscure German name. And I got on YouTube and I said, how do you pronounce that? Because I don't want to look like a total idiot, just a small idiot. And there was video right there, somebody telling me how to pronounce it. So, in the 1600s, tell you a story about a couple of guys. One you've probably heard of, Johann Sebastian Bach. He was the younger in this story, and the elder was a guy named Dietrich Buxtehude. Now, that's not real German, but YouTube got me close, okay? Dietrich Buxtehude. Buxtehude is this great composer. Everybody thinks highly of him. In his own day, he's incredibly famous, 
And Bach used to travel great distances at his own time, at his own expense, to go to the church where Dietrich performed just because he wanted to listen and he wanted to watch. That's how he learned, watching the master. He would even take Buxtehude's scores, his symphonies, and he would put his on one side and he would take a, a blank sheet of music on the other side and he would just copy it just by hand, just for the repetition just to get inside of his mind, to understand how he composed and why he put notes where and how, how he did everything and how he put music together. He learned through imitation. And we would say he learned well. And if you're going to follow Jesus, it's great to say, look, I'm in it, I'm a Christian, I'm going after Jesus. Well, what does that really look like? What does that look like for you husbands or for you wives? What does it look like to follow Jesus in your marriage? Or for you as parents, what does that look like? For you as a church member, how do you know what that looks like to follow Jesus as a church member, as an employee or as a boss? What does it look like for you to follow Jesus? At some point, you've got to find somebody else who's following Jesus and say, I want to do it like they're doing it. I want to love my wife or my husband like that. I want to be faithful at work like that person is. I want to be a faithful church member like that person is. And you've got to be able to look around and find somebody that you can follow. So who are you following? Now we'll spin that around. Another question I would ask you is what sort of example are you setting for others who are looking for an example to follow? Because Paul is, is bold enough to say, look, you need an example to follow? Me, Timothy, Epaphroditus. We are men who are not seeking our own interests, but we're serving the church. Do what we do. Are you setting the kind of example that will make a manual Baptist church a better church in 10 years from now? Look around the room. Look at anybody younger than you. And just sort of ask yourself, don't say the answer out loud, but just think about it. If all of the people in my church younger than me grew up and followed my example as a church member, as a spouse, as a parent, would this be a better place in 10 years than it is today? Yes or no? That's kind of a heavy weight, right? That's an immense responsibility. But that's the way life works. The reality is the people coming behind us are going to look an awful lot like we do. It's because they learn through imitation. So the question is, as church members and as husbands and as wives and as parents and as employees and as bosses, what kind of example are you setting? Because you are setting an example. No one gets to, like, opt out of this and say, well, I'm going to follow an example, but I don't really want to set one for anybody. You are setting one. The question is, what kind of example are you setting? Here's the second thing Paul says as he's describing these citizens of heaven. They eagerly wait for the return of their Savior and their Lord. Their Savior and their Lord. Verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting when you study Roman history that most of the emperors took both of these two titles as their own, Savior and Lord. Savior and Lord. Almost all the emperors claim those as their own. Just some examples from history for you to think about. In 48 
A.D., the citizens of Ephesus came up with an inscription, and they called Caesar the universal savior of mankind. In Philippi, there's inscriptions talking about Caesar, and they call him the savior of human life. Later, down in Egypt, this is a few years down the road, but there's an inscription that calls Nero the savior of the world. And throughout the Roman Empire, at different times it was expected and sometimes it was required, which this got costly for Christians, but they expected you or they required you to utter the confession, sort of like their pledge of allegiance, Caesar is Lord. He's Savior. He's Lord. And Paul yanks both of those titles away from the Roman government. He says, no, 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 there's one Savior and there's one Lord. And we're not citizens of Rome, the United States, or the Republic of Texas. We're citizens of heaven. And our Savior and our Lord is coming from heaven. He's the Savior. He's the one who saves you from your sins, who saves you from hell. He's the one one who promises to save you from aches and pains one day. From memory loss, from cancer, from loneliness, from anxiety, we are waiting that kind of salvation. He's the Lord. Paul describes that pretty well in Philippians 2. If you look at verse 10 and 11, he says there's a day coming where at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, it's an interesting thing. You look back in history, there's been a number of different groups of people who have really believed they knew when Jesus was coming back. Like they were certain the day and the hour, they knew this is when he's coming. And a lot of those people would sell their businesses, quit mowing their grass, they didn't do their homework that night. You know what I'm saying? They went and ate at food trucks because they didn't think they were going to feel bad the next day, whatever. They just sort of say, he's coming, he's coming. So they just sort of let all responsibility go. And a lot of these people, it's interesting, they would go out to hills or mountains and they would gather together on the night and they would wait and they would wait and they would wait and he didn't come. So it's worth asking the question, when Paul says we're waiting for our Savior and Lord to come from heaven, what does that look like? Does that look like just... Forget all your earthly responsibilities and go find the highest hill and wait for Jesus there? I don't think that's what it means. I think what it means, if you're eagerly waiting for the return of your Savior and your Lord, is that right now, today, you acknowledge and you live as if Jesus were truly your Savior and your Lord. First of all, you acknowledge that you need a Savior, that you can't save yourself. If you're going to acknowledge that, you've got to acknowledge your sin. I've sinned against God. You've got to acknowledge God's holiness and that your sin against God is a serious, an infinitely serious offense. And you've got to acknowledge there's nothing you can do to fix that problem. I can't save myself, but I'm waiting for my Savior to come. Jesus is the one who can save me. And it means acknowledging Jesus as your Lord. Acknowledging that he has authority over your life. That he says, this is how far you can go and no farther. 
that when he says go and make disciples or he says love your wife or love your spouse or teach your kids, he means all of those things. And you listen to him as your Lord. So they're eagerly waiting for the return of their Savior and their Lord. Last idea is this, very short. They eagerly anticipate the resurrection. Verse 21. We're waiting for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is a great place to leave off on the Sunday before Easter. Right? So we go into Holy Week and we think about Maundy Thursday coming and Good Friday coming and Saturday where Jesus is in the tomb and Resurrection Sunday. All of these events we get ready to celebrate. What a great reminder that not only did Jesus rise from the dead, that his lowly body was transformed into this heavenly body, this glorious body, but that when he comes... We're waiting for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, and when he comes, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. We're not just celebrating, when we celebrate Easter, we're not just celebrating something that happened 2,000 years ago. We're celebrating something that happened 2,000 years ago, and we're looking forward to something else that's going to happen when Jesus comes back, and that's our resurrection where our lowly bodies will be transformed, will be changed in the blink of an eye, the twinkling of an eye into his glorious body. That's the hope we celebrate this week, in Easter week, in Holy Week. Yes, that Jesus rose from the dead, but that he's coming back, and when he does, we will rise as well. So we're going to leave off there as we think about Holy Week coming and Easter coming. I'm going to pray for you, and we're going to sing one more song, so let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for this letter that Paul wrote to his friends in Philippi. We're grateful for your spirit inspiring the truth that we see in this passage. Father, give us eyes to see the reality of our own lives and the lives of the people around us. Father, we want to be very certain that our allegiance is in the right place, that our citizenship is in the right place. Father, we do not want to walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, saying the right things and living differently. But Father, we want to be citizens of heaven, and we eagerly, with anticipation, wait for our Savior and our Lord. Father, and as we think about Easter Sunday, just a week away, we think about Jesus riding into Jerusalem and the crucifixion and the burial Father, all of the gospel story of Jesus dying for our sins, it gives us hope. Father, not only hope that Jesus rose from the dead, but hope that one day his people, the citizens of his kingdom, will be raised. Father, what a great hope you've given us in Christ. Father, we believe that you are the God who has started salvation and the God who will finish it. Paul says that to the Philippians. That when you begin a good work, you bring it to completion on the day of Jesus. We long for that day and we're excited for that day. Father, be honored as we sing in response to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.